Faith matters. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a program devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this program is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1, Faith Matters, the name of the program, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. It's my pleasure, of course, to welcome Dr. Zayed Ahmed Khan Sahib, who is president of the Qazar Board of Jurisprudence here in the UK. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Sahib. And to his right, of course, is Molana Abdul Ghani Jahangir Khan Sahib, who's head of the French desk here in the United Kingdom. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah for joining us on uh, Faith Matters uh, once again. And we'll get straight to it with our question from Rabla Danvir. Assalamu alaikum and uh, thank you very much for your uh, questions. Three questions that Rabla's posing uh, to us or, or to you, to the two of you this morning. The first one is um, if it's around the, all her three questions are around sin and punishment, that she asks if Allah punishes a man for any sin he has committed, but then man never accepts those sins. Can that punishment result in any sort of sickness, disease, or health issues? In effect, um, a sin has been committed, but the person who has committed that sin is never accepting that that sin actually took place. Jahangir so. You see, Allah wishes for everybody to, to be saved and to have a soul which has progressed enough in this world that when it arrives in the next world, it will be healthy. It will be in good spiritual health. So when people neglect themselves and they commit sins, God sometimes shakes them up, so to speak, you know, every so often in their lives so that they can reflect on what they're doing and they can correct themselves. It is true that sometimes people don't even realize what sins they've committed. So they must know some of them. But maybe other times they might have said something which hurt somebody, for example, or they, they did something which had a, a very you know, bad effect on somebody else and they didn't really realize it. And this is why we're, we've been taught by the Holy Prophet Muhammad to pray that Allah forgive us our sins that we know, know of and also the sins that we don't know of. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of a, an, a recognition of this fact that sometimes people don't realize you know, the extent of the sin. Yes, exactly. <coughs> um, Therefore, it can happen that, uh, that uh, Allah shakes the person up you know, by some kind of a trial or, you know, or so-called punishment in this life so that the person can realize. And uh, if they don't realize it in this life and they don't ask for forgiveness for it, in the next life God will inform them of what they did and they will have to realize it there. So it's always better to keep you know, this kind of, uh, you know, this interior inspection of oneself all the time so that one may detect whatever one may have done in this very life before one reaches the next life. I suppose as a sub-question to that, Dr. Zaitsar, is does one need to repent to actually be for, for, forgiven of that sin? Is that a prerequisite? Well, yes, we have to always be turning to Allah, the Almighty. And uh, as Jahangir Sahib says, that we have to have a self-assessment of our life. Mm -hmm. And the realization of having made a mistake is the first step in this whole process because once man realizes that he has incurred uh, a sin, he has gone astray, then that makes him turn to Allah the Almighty and seek his forgiveness. 
Allah is always ready and ready to forgive man for his sins. He knows that man is created weak and he is bound to err. So in that respect, man continually is turning to Allah and that is the bond that we have with our Creator, is that we should be turning to the Creator. And in that respect, if we have committed mistakes, then we realize those mistakes and we make repentance and forgive, seek forgiveness from Allah. At the same time, having made sure that we have made adjustments in our life that we keep away from that sin as, as is possible. But uh, for those sins that we are not aware of, then prayer is the way of turning to Allah and seeking His forgiveness in that respect. So this is a sort of a, a two-pronged attack. This is a preventative attack as well as a curative attack that once we are aware of the sins that we have committed, we ask Allah for His forgiveness in a curative form. And for those sins that we are not aware of that we have committed, then in a preventative form that we can turn to Allah through prayer that Allah will protect us from the sins that we may commit. So this is the whole struggle of our life, in fact. And this is the ethos of our life as such that we have. And I, I suppose this issue of repentance, if I just dwell on it a further moment, is, is this kind of uh, the repeated offence. One commits a sin, realises it's a sin, seeks repentance, and then goes and does it again. What's the status then? Yes, in society we have these repeat offenders and they we, do, see, we, we see well, that. Well, they say sometimes three strikes and you're out, but I'm right. sure it doesn't work not that with in the, the no, spiritual exactly. world. Not with Allah or the Almighty, and thankfully, thankfully so. Uh, Allah the Almighty is always ready to forgive and there is no limit that he has set for man that beyond this there is no repentance for him. So this is the graciousness, the merciful nature of Allah the Almighty that this door of forgiveness and rep or repentance from man and forgiveness from Allah is always open. And uh, this is what we have been taught by the Holy Prophet sallam, is that this journey continues until our last breath and this is Allah's mercy that he will encompass us. Jazakumullah. Jahangir Saab, Rabbullah is also focusing, as I said, three sort of questions. Next one's really about trials and tribulations. And often we hear this, that uh, God um, sometimes, you know, tries those or uh, tests people who God himself loves. And how can, the questioner puts it, how can one differentiate what is a trial from God Almighty and what is a punishment from God Almighty? You see, the spiritual world, as the Promised Messiah has explained to us, uh, you know, in a very beautiful way, is a, is a reflection of this uh, world and vice versa. So, we see that in this world, to be able to attain to anything, we need to go through many tests and trials. Otherwise, we could just tell a child who's starting primary school, well, here's your PhD, you know, whatever, you know, certificate or whatever. You don't have to go to school, here you go, you can go and work now. That's not going to work, is it? Mm -hmm. He will have to go through the whole education process to reach that stage and he'll have to keep going through tests and trials to prove himself and to better himself in order to arrive at something you know, worthwhile. So in the spiritual world, it's very much the same. And it's only through trials and tribulations that people actually progress spiritually. And uh, this is why Allah says in the Holy Quran, He says that, do you believe, do you think that now that you've believed that Allah is going to leave you alone? He said, He will test you in different ways in your lives, in, your, uh, in your, your children, your wealth, there will be many things which you will have to let go of and you'll lose mm -hmm. in the process. 
But this is all so that God can establish who is the one who is with him and who is the one who isn't. Because those who re refuse God, they usually shy away from these trials and tribulations as well. They avoid them at all costs. And the Prophet ﷺ said that those who avoid the smaller trials of life or the smaller difficulties of life, they're put by Allah into greater ones. Mm -hmm. Because his objective is to make everybody progress. So if one says that, uh, you know, we don't want to go through trials and tribulations, you know, God should be merciful, he should be nice and kind to us, why is he making us go through all this? It would be the same as a child saying, why do I have to go to school? Why do I have to go through all these examinations? Why do I have to take all these lex extra lessons after class and this and that? I don't want to do that, it's not fair. It doesn't make any sense. So that's the very same with Allah. You know, it's, I mean, it's uh, on another level, of course, but it's very similar. So we should try to understand that trials are good for us. Now, how to differentiate between trials and punishments as such? Well, it's the results. If a trial has come and one has taken it as such and one has been, you know, steadfast and one has tried to pull through, you know, no matter what, and to look for that silver lining in everything, then one feels in oneself that one has uh, progressed and has become stronger. On the other hand, when one is being punished, a person, that person also realizes that. And this is why we'll see many instances of uh, even atheists, when they're being subjected to some kind of divine punishment, at that point they start calling out to God to save them. So that's a kind of realization as a, you know, in itself, that they have done something wrong. And that, fear, that, that feeling of dread which, feel, which fills them at that time and which they sometimes speak about because they weren't killed in it, they survived it and so some of them actually say that this is what happened to us and we knew it was because we'd done certain things that this is now happening to us, you know. So there are ways that people can tell but there is a kind of a blurry line between some of yeah. them. So yeah. one shouldn't read too much into what's happening to oneself and not take everything to be a, a punishment the most important thing is not to judge others for what's happening to them and to say, like for example, this is one thing which I, 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 I usually you know, have issues with uh, when I speak to people who believe in karma, for example. When people become callous saying that, well, if this person is poor and is lying in the street, it's because he did something or she did something mm -hmm. in her previous life. So let, her, let them you know, you know, live it out now. That's very callous. So this kind of an idea makes people become callous. One should not judge. This might be a trial for them and not a punishment, and so one should help them in any case. Dr. Zaitsev, just one element to that as well. I suppose punishment is sometimes perceived as a real negative, yet punishment with its uh, intention to be rehabilitative, mm -hmm. uh, to have reform behind mm -hmm. it. You take a parent and a child. Sure. A child is punished, sent to the room, for example, or told to, mm. you know, <coughs> go to their room and sit silently, whatever. That to a child is a trial, it's a tribulation, mm. and mm. it's a punishment mm. because, you know, they're being told to do all the <coughs> things that child don't do want to, I sit down, be quiet, and don't mm. be seen because they've done some. Yet in that, it's done through reformation, an idea of reformation and love. And surely that's how punishments should be perceived as well. Absolutely. In this instance, as you say, this, this is part of the life. And training always entails some kind of restrictions that are placed upon whoever you're trying to train at that time. And that is what reformation obviously is. So there is someone who is aware of a situation better than in that instance of a child, for instance, or you may have a student. So the teacher or the parent is better aware 
and more versed about what the, how to train and uh, reform that child. And therefore, by restricting some activity of that child, so that child realizes that this will actually be beneficial for him at a later, day, later stage, is something is a period of reformation and training of that child. And, the, and this process is an ongoing process throughout our life. So in the same way, Allah the Almighty, who is well aware of what is, what is good for us and what is harmful for us, is actually bringing into our, our lives this process of reformation. So each and every aspect of our life is, is as such, should be seen as such. And they say, as, as Jahangir Sahib has eloquently said, is there is no pain, there is no gain without pain. Mm -hmm. So there have to be some sacrifices made in order to be able to gain something. And for a sportsman, often it is very easy to realize how important that is, the training that they go through and restrictions that they perhaps put on their own life through, the, through, through their training, knowing at the end of this training, they will come out a better, better athlete in that respect. And that is also the aspect of our own life. But there is one other thing that I think we, we can say on this, is that Allah does not burden mm -hmm. any soul beyond its capacity. So there is a sort well, of... Often people feel they are being burdened, <laughs> don't they? I mean, uh, Absolutely. we've we, all been there thinking, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I can't cope with this. And but, then perhaps we, but, but, perhaps realize, <clears throat> but perhaps we don't realize mm. as to how much we can achieve, whereas Allah is, has full realization of what our full capabilities and capacities are. At that time, it does seem, yes, this is beyond me. But Allah says that he never uh, burdens a soul uh, beyond its capacity. And this is what we see both in the spiritual sense and perhaps in the physical sense as well. So punishments should, and trials should be taken with that in view, is that it is a process of reformation. And this is in the end good for us and as such. Uh, as a friend of mine uh, once said to me, you know, feel that you're still there at the end, it proves that you can do it and you can bear it. Um, <laughs> a, f a final uh, element to this, Jahangir Saab, is about if a person commits a sin, is it possible that God Almighty will punish his future generations, his children, his grandchildren? Um, but surely, you know, the other side of faith we read in all faiths is that a person can only be held accountable to God Almighty for his own actions. Well, yes, in, in Islam, there was no concept of the original sin, mm -hmm. meaning that somebody did something in the remote past and you have, you have to pay for it, not at all. So we see, for example, in Surah Al-An'am, which is chapter 6 of the Holy Quran, verse 165. I'm going to read a little portion of it. So it says that means the only thing which will be held to account for what it had done was the soul itself, not any other soul nor does any bearer of burden bear the burden of another. Mm -hmm. So this, this is in the case of where God will be judging what the soul did. He will not judge another soul for what some other soul did in, in the first place. But having said that, it doesn't mean that what one soul commits in this world has no bearing on other souls. Of course it does. There could be, for example, a leader of a nation who, takes, who has to make you know, different decisions you know, every several minutes of the day, every one of those decisions will have an incidence on the people who are below him. So 
similarly, whatever a father decides to do will have an effect on his, on his whole family. And the, the, the case which I re remember well, once which was discussed in one of the programs, was that, uh, let's, say, let's say for example, a, a, a father who's driving a car with all his family inside suddenly decides to drive his car off the cliff, off the top of a cliff. So he'll die. Will his wife and his children be saved because they didn't do that? Of course they'll die. They'll all die together. So they all have to bear the consequence of what he did, but they won't be judged for it though. He will be judged for it. They won't be made to bear that burden. This is how in the Bible, this is how we, rec we reconcile the teaching of the Bible which says that God says that I visit the, the evil of the wicked upon them unto the seventh generation. So even for seven generations sometimes they can still be feeling the effects of what their ancestors did. But that doesn't mean that they will be held to account for it. So there's a difference between the two which I think needs to be made. And just as an added point to this, uh, I suppose is, as Jang Yusuf's pointed out, from, a, from God's perspective and in, in terms of judgment or accountability, yet societal pressures are different. You, know, you have the issue of a legacy, someone you know, whose grandfather may have committed a heinous crime. Mm today may still be counted as the grandson of rather than, or a granddaughter of rather than recognized for their own efforts. They may be a very sincere and pious person in their own right. And that's, that's a difficult balance for someone in themselves to sort of live with as well at times to keep that legacy. Or, um, in other cases, of course, Dr. Zaitsev, it's a positive one that, you know, grandfathers, fathers, grandmothers, etc., have been very eminent and very pious. And it's retaining that legacy and building upon it. The society is very quick at uh, putting labels on people and in both instances of having uh, ancestry who have done great things or ancestry that have done <coughs> heinous crimes, then the offspring, the generations, and uh, they get labeled and the stigma remains with these families at, at times. Uh, and this is perhaps, as Jahangir Sahib says, the Bible says that it remains with them for seven generations, meaning that for a long time to come after that, that stigma will always remain with them. But that is only a societal thing. It has nothing to do with the punishment or inheritance of sin that that family or that progeny will take on and whether they will be accountable for the acts of their ancestors who have passed away. So this is, uh, we believe that there is a just God he is nothing but justice and he loves justice. And in that respect, as far as uh, accountability is concerned, we will all be only accountable for our right, own I deeds imagine. and we will not have inherited sin in us. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah and my thanks also to Rabla Ganvir <coughs> for all three questions. We're going to um, travel to Dusseldorf to Germany for our next question, which comes from Zishan Arif. Assalamu alaikum Zishan, and thank you for your question. Um, he's quoting Hazrat Mirza Hulam Ahmed, the promised Messiah and founder of the Amdiya community. Um, and he says, and I'll read the quote directly, and I quote Mirza Saab said, enemies wish for my death and prophecies about it. God has, however, given me the good news that I shall live for 80 years or more. Ruhani I'm saying that, that volume 19, page 239. This, he then asked that um, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, the promised Messiah, died in 1908. Um, and perhaps building on that, Dr. Zaitsop, you know, what was his age? And did, I, I guess, what the question is getting at, was this prophecy fulfilled? Well, the promised Messiah was given uh, revelations, prophecies about uh, his uh, demise uh, in at least three instances. 
but there were very general uh, prophecies as such and not specific as far as dates were concerned. If I can just uh, refer back to these three prophecies, the first is, uh, the Prime Minister says, 80 years or thereabouts or a little more and you will witness your distant progeny. This he made in, in 1900, so that was a general sort of uh, revelation uh, in meaning 80 years or thereabouts, in which it could be more than 80 years or less than 80 years. In another similar revelation, he received 80 years or thereabouts again, which is recorded in Izala or Ham. But a more specific uh, uh, and uh, more pertinent prophecy that we should need to look at is one that is in Hakikatul Wahi, in which he says, 80 years or thereabouts, uh, uh, you know, so 80 and four or five more, or four or five less. Okay. So this is actually a more accurate a definition of the prophecy which relates to the demise of the Holy, uh, of the pr promised Messiah So this span could be from 75 years to 85 years. So this actually pinpoints it to a, a, a greater degree. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't have obviously records of date uh, birth certificates of the promised Messiah when he as to when he was born. But we should refer back to his own writings again and try to find out as to when he was born and what was his, uh, what was the mm. year of his of birth. If you, it, interestingly, the Promised Messiah uses the lunar calendar when he writes in his books, being a Muslim, mm. being the Promised Messiah, being the Mahdi, he would obviously use not the Gregorian calendar as such, but, but he would use the lunar calendar, calendar as such. And in his book, Hakikat al-Wahi, he says that I received the first revelation in 1290 after Hijrah. This is the Muslim lunar calendar. So bear this date in mind, 1290 in the Muslim calendar. Mm -hmm. And then defining there, he says in Hakikatul, in Tiriyakul Kulub, that he wrote that the first revelation I received was when I was 40 years of age. So from this, we can actually calculate as to what was the year of the birth of the Promised Messiah. So he was born in the year 1250 after Hijrah. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as when his death took place, we have records, obviously, of that. And uh, if in the Gregorian calendar, that relates to 1908. Mm -hmm. Now, when that is actually calculated back to the lunar calendar, we have a date of 1326 after Hijra mm -hmm. in the Hijri calendar. So from this very simple calculation, we know that he was born in 1250, died in 1326. So therefore, he was 76 years of age. Mm -hmm at the time of his death. Which fits into that Which prophecy. exactly fits yeah. in to the prophecy in the parameters that were discussed in that prophecy. And just for the benefit of our non-Muslim viewers, of course, the Gregorian and Islamic or the lunar calendar, on average there's a 10-day differential yeah. in every given year. There is a 10-day difference uh, mm -hmm. between the lunar calendar being shorter mm -hmm. than the Gregorian calendar. But there is a way of calculating uh, or, or, uh, or going from one to the other, mm -hmm. which I'm not very mathematical uh, <laughs> minded in any case. So I couldn't give you that calculation, yeah. but there is a simple calculation Simplation. to be able to do that. But I think that gives it, puts it into context. And as young there, saw, there is one thing which I, I wanted to, 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 to yes. say here, because it's the reason why they asked this question. There were two reasons. Yeah. One, of it, one of them is that uh, they want to prove that he is false because his prophecy didn't come true. Yes. Now, if we can show that the prophecy did come true, then I think they should be straightforward and they should accept, therefore, that he is true on the same premise. But the other thing is that uh, they, w they also point out something about this prophecy, which is that doesn't Allah himself know? Why does he have to say, 
80 and mm -hmm. four or five years more or four or five years less. It's like very vague, you know? The thing is that when they, when they make this objection against the, uh, this revelation as coming from Allah, what they're in fact doing is they're objecting against the verse of the Holy Quran. Because in that verse of the Holy Quran, which is in Surah Yunus, and it's verse 46, and I'm going to give the translation by Yusuf Ali, who's a non-Ahmadi scholar, a very well-known translator of the Holy Quran to English. It says, Allah speaking here, okay. to the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu whether we show thee, realized in thy lifetime, some part of what we promise them, or we take thy soul to our mercy before that, in any case, to us is their return, ultimately Allah's witness to all that they do. So Allah is saying, whether I make you die before the prophecy comes true, or I make you die after uh, it comes true, anyway, they're all going to come back to me. Mm -hmm. And Allah is going to decide. So it's a way that Allah speaks. It means that it's not very important. Either you'll live to such a, a, a date, or you'll live to that date, but in any case, your mission will be fulfilled. That's mm -hmm. the, the, the underlying message here. So when they attack the Promised Messiah's revelations in this way, what they're in fact doing is they're attacking Islam as such. And they don't realize that. And in fact, it's an, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. I think we've said this in programs before. Any attack which they launch against the Prophet can be turned back against the Prophet Muhammad So they, they should really be very careful you know, before launching these, uh, you know, these attacks against his, his person. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah and my thanks also to Zishan. Um, we're going to move on to our next question, gentlemen, which comes from Shahid Ahmed Sahib from right here in London. Um, Again, uh, Shahid Sahib, Assalamu Alaikum. Thank you for your uh, kind comments about faith matters and um, uh, sharing with us some of your sentiments about the program. That's very kind. Um, his question, Jangir Saab, is, uh, he says, a short one, but he says a tricky one as well in his own words. But it relates to the incident uh, during the life of Hazrat Promised Messiah, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed al-Islam about the uh, red spots which appeared um, and that these were something which were revealed in through a dream and they subsequently appeared in a literal sense. If you could just set the context as to what this refers to and then his actual specific question is, is there a scientific explanation as to how these spots appeared and indeed is there any uh, scientific basis to them? Well, very briefly, mm. uh, to cut the story short, mm. the Promised Messiah was in the presence of his uh, companion, Abdullah Sanori Sahib Al-Talanhu. When uh, red ink drops appeared on not only his own shirt, the Promised Messiah's shirt, but also on the cap of his uh, companion from nowhere. And they thoroughly checked the room to see if there'd been any, for example, you know, like gecko or anything like that running across the ceiling. It might have bled onto them, mm -hmm. although it was quite a copious amount. So it, it would be a little bit difficult for that to have happened. There, were, there weren't any. And there wasn't any external source. They checked everywhere. There wasn't any crevice in the ceiling or anything like that. They were the first ones to actually carry out this investigation to find out where these drops had come from. But what had happened was the Promised Messiah said that he was actually sitting and uh, his companion was pressing his feet because he was in, in pain. So uh, he said that he had seen in a vision that Allah the Almighty was, uh, was about to sign a document, which of course is metaphorically speaking, he doesn't really sign documents, but this is all metaphor. And he said he flicked his, uh, his uh, pen, which was you know, like a, a, a feather, mm -hmm. which he had dipped in, in red ink, and when he flicked it, that's when those drops of ink you know, appeared on them. And when he, when he awoke from that vision, 
he saw the drops of ink on his shirt and also on the, on the cup, as I'd said. Um, so, so really, in, in effect, we don't have a scientific explanation for that. Something appeared from nothing. There is no explanation. On the other hand, there's an observation. And this is not new to science. There are many things which are recognized by science for which they do not have an explanation. And including many of which which are of this very nature. Something appearing from nothing. We know, for example, that our whole universe appeared from nothing. It came from non-existence into existence, and there is no scientific explanation so far for it. The only thing they can say is that they know that it happened, mm -hmm. but they don't know how it happened, and they can't repeat it either. Therefore, this is not a thing which is anti-science, it's just that science hasn't caught up with it yet, that's all we can say. So there isn't a scientific explanation at this point in time. Jahangir and my thanks also to Shahid Saab for his question. Our next one, uh, we're staying in the UK, but we're traveling north. We're going up to Scotland, which comes from Hasham Ahmed Sahib. Asalaamu Alaikum, Sham. Thank you for your questions. Um, he's a medical student in Scotland, and he's got a couple of questions. The first um, relates to homeopathy and its basis in, and we've just talked about science, Dr. Sahib, and it's, there's this uh, sort of debate that carries on about it, its effectiveness, its purpose, its relation with cures and uh, Hasham's actually relating to you know that he's obviously a medical student himself and he's learning things about allopathic medicine and its cause and effect but here he's talking and asking a question about the connection on with the soul and the impact homeopathy has with the soul as well if we could just start I mean first of all if you like there's the the bread and butter of everything there's always two sides to this argument that um, but certainly there is a, a reasoning there is a recognition within certain circles that homeopathy not only has a place in society and in terms of cure but it's something that's proven at times to provide a cure as well I think uh, in recent years and in the UK also science is beginning to recognize that there is place for alternative medicine and alternative therapies and Hasham probably knows this better than we and homeopathy is again an example of an alternative medicine which actually is beginning to be accepted by by, by some scientists mm -hmm. I should say the jury actually is still out perhaps on that is whether there is scientific basis for the effectiveness of homeopathic medicines mm -hmm. and home homeopathy in general but uh, looking at the results that many, many uh, uh, specialists in this branch receive, then one cannot deny that there is something, to, something of substance as far as cures are concerned in this respect. As far as homeopathy is concerned, and uh, I think this is again something that the body actually heals whatever the ailment is. So that, that is the basis of it, is that it is actually the body so we can again say that God Almighty has left within the body some mechanism by which it is able to cure itself and perhaps defend itself and Hasham probably knows this as the immune system, a defense system that the body has. It is always there in the background but sometimes it does go uh, into dormant, hibernation, yes. into d it yeah. becomes dormant yeah. and therefore is, is not able to cure whatever disease is, is coming into the body and homeopathy because the dilutions are so great that there is perhaps not even an atom of that 
medicine, yeah, the active principle, the active yeah. principle yeah. In, in, the, in the actual medicine that has been given to the body. But however, there is a response from the body in which it acts against that, that enemy that, that is acting against the host. So therefore, the response of the body is certainly there. Now, where does that response come from? And where is the receptor within the body which detects mm. this is something that is of debate. Actually, the Promised Messiah has said that this is the spiritual system of healing as well. So there is some connection with the soul as such. And perhaps science has not developed enough to be able to understand how uh, intricate and how sensitive the soul is against these uh, activities that it does then trigger the immune system to have a response and therefore the cure is found within. But at the same time we can marvel at the human body is that God in, its, in, in that has put uh, systems which actually are able to defend uh, it from ailments that, that, that are encountered. So this is uh, generally some part of homeopathy and how things work and the soul perhaps has got yeah, some connection well. in it that. It reminds me of what the Holy Prophet ﷺ said. He said there is a cure for every ailment except death. There is a cure. So it's already there. Right. It's just a question of uh, you know, trig triggering it off you know, to, to, to sometimes. Because uh, th that is one of the, the uh, d difficulties of homeopathy. Every patient has his own immune system. Of course. Every yeah. immune system doesn't function exactly in the same way. It's in yeah. a different state of dormancy. Different parts of it are dormant and different parts aren't. And it varies. So it's very, very difficult to be able to, to carry out tests on everybody in a, in a kind of a blanket form, like, as is done with other kinds of medication, where it's not, it's not the, the, you know, the, the, the soul that's doing anything as such, as we're talking about here. But it's actually the medication which is doing all the work. It's the active principle which is pushing aside the, um, uh, the immune system and doing the, the work itself, going to kill the cancer itself instead of letting the immune system do it. It's a very different philosophy of, of uh, medicine. And therefore, we find one philosophy coming from one angle, trying to understand another philosophy in its own way. So there are bound to be misunderstandings there. I think there has to be a more general and broader understanding of, across the board before homeopathy can begin to be understood correctly. But do you think there's a place to say that these cures or, you know, when, if someone is sick, if someone is ill and desperately ill, at that time, either the patient themselves or their relatives and friends around them desire a cure. Yeah, uh, to go for anything. Absolutely. Yes. And are these two kind of methods or routes, are they complementary? Are they contradictory? They or? can be complementary to a large degree. And I do know that uh, whenever we've, uh, in our Jamaat anyway, when, when uh, you know, these medications have been given to people, they're always told you have to consult your medical doctor, your mm. general practitioner. Mm. And uh, you can take these medications in conjunction or not, depending on what they're taking. They're not always complementary. Sometimes they can be antagonistic as well. So it has, you have to kind of uh, have a proper That's homeopath to work with you on this. But uh, in general, they can be very much complementary. Like, for example, a, a very classic case is uh, the one of headaches. Mm -hmm. As Khalifa al had said on many occasions, he said, actually, yes, yeah, the fourth uh, 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 supreme uh, head of our community. Mm -hmm. He said that uh, actually finding the exact remedy for the, for the headache is a headache in itself. <laughs> because every patient has a headache for a different reason. <laughs> and so therefore, he said, in those cases, better go for the paracetamol or the, uh, the, the aspirin you know, to get immediate relief so that you can work. We can find it, but it'll take time. It ha because homeopaths have to decide what is more appropriate for, what, for which patient. 
It's not like a one for all. It's, it doesn't work like that in homeopathy, you see. That's true. And sometimes <coughs> a cure for a headache is a cup of tea. But, um, <laughs> it can be. As, as some it would say, be. it can be if you're, if, if you're used to that. Yeah. A vast uh, <coughs> subject, gentlemen, but we will move on. But my thanks to um, Hasham for his first question on that. His second one is totally uh, different, not so much in the field of uh, medicine, Dr. Saab, but it's regarding marriage. And he's, he's asking, what's the best way to pray for your future partner and future children? And are there any particular qualities or prayers that one should be focusing on, uh, particularly um, as provided or in the example of the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him? Of course, marriage is an essential part of our life as the Holy Prophet has directed us that that is his way and that is what we are supposed to follow is that we should get married. So as far as our life is concerned, that is perhaps one of the most important uh, I was going to say hurdles, but one of the most important decisions decision, that uh, we will take. Well, it can be a hurdle <laughs> in the sense that it's, it's, you know, you're, you're obviously focused on getting the right choice yes, for yourself absolutely. and indeed your partner. Yes, and mm. that is where we require the help of Allah Almighty and prayer is obviously essential in, in that respect. There are many gen general prayers that we can always seek from Allah the Almighty in this respect. Uh, one that comes to mind, of prayer of Hazrat Musa alayhi I'm in need of whatever good that you are to give to me. So that is an important prayer that it's a simple short prayer. These are all, many of these prayers are Quranic prayers that we find them in the Holy Quran. And they're pr uh, prayers of prophets other than the Holy Prophet as well. But the Holy Prophet himself would also use these, these words. And in Hadith, we have the prayers of the Holy Prophet So th this is just one aspect of our prayer that and we should start the, these prayers from an early age. Um, you can never say that it is too never early. too early to start yeah, these prayers. True. So we should start them from an early age and teach them to our children. And as they grow up, they should always have this in mind that we are turning to Allah in this respect as well. The other prayer is Rabbana Atina, Rabbana Hablana Min Azwajina Wa Min Zuriyatina Kurrata Ayunin Wajalna Lil Muttaqina Imama. So this is another important prayer that is taught to us by the Holy Quran in seeking uh, not only pro uh, our spouses, but oh, also our for, for our children, uh, mm. children as well. Hazrat Ibrahim salam, the great patriarch prophet, his, prof his prayers are recorded in the Holy Quran uh, as far as uh, asking for uh, spiritual progeny. Rabbi habli mina swalihin, grant me righteous mm. progeny. So these are all prayers that are, we find in the Holy Quran that we should constantly be turning to through prayer and uh, turning to Allah and seeking his guidance and forgiveness. It reminds me of a friend of mine who actually told me once, he said, I, I have a fail-proof fail -proof prayer to get a daughter with. And I said, really? I was quite interested in finding out which one that would be. Mm. So he told me he went to a, an elderly gentleman in the Jamaat and he asked him for a prayer. And he said, the, the person didn't have many teeth. So when he was speaking, I didn't really understand and not knowing Arabic, I only remembered the first half of the prayer, which was Rabbi Habli. So he said, I couldn't dare ask him, could you repeat that, please? So he said, I went home, you know, quite confused with just half a prayer. So I thought, what will I do? Let me add another piece in just to balance it off. So he said, Rabbi Habli Demanu Babli, which in Punjabi rhymes and means, uh, oh, my Lord, give me, give me a daughter. Give me a little, a little girl. He said, then Allah gave me a daughter. And he said, I used that twice and I got two daughters. So there you go. <laughs> 
Well, uh, quite well, a unique experience, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And but again, it shows that intention. I'm sure the gentleman concerned was very sincere in that. And I think coming to a more pertinent point is about the importance of prayer. And just on that point about that, you can never start too early. If you look at the example of all the prophets, um, it's about not just them. It's not just about their children, but their children's children, indeed, future progeny. So, mm -hmm. which is. A very important point. Um, my thanks uh, once again to Hasham, to your good self, uh, for your two questions, and we wish you the best of luck in your uh, studies in Scotland. Um, we'll move on to our next question, which comes from Nadia Shah, and we're going to cross the pond for this, where she's in the United States. Assalamu alaikum, Nadia. Thank you for your kind comments about faith matters. Jangir um, Saab, her question is about the concept of jinn or other life forms um, that exist in different dimensions? Do they have a basis? Do they exist? Well, there is obviously a concept of jinn because it's mentioned in the Holy Quran. Jinn sort of literally translated, you would translate how? You see, the thing is, if we had translated it, it wouldn't, there wouldn't have been any issues at all. <laughs> jinn means the hidden things or the hidden ones. Now, if, if we try to reread the whole, you know, the older the verses now, saying that Allah says that, oh, you hidden ones and men. Suddenly it doesn't, it doesn't sound like so exotic anymore. It's just something which is hidden. But yet people, just before we move on, they, they, they think it's some kind of in being. They always look into it and see more than what's yes, necessarily yes. there. We know that the word jinn meaning, meaning something hidden mm -hmm. sometimes refers to bacteria. And we're not going to go into the details of that now. We have gone into those details before. And you can always find us on MTA Online 1 as you... Uh, as I do on YouTube, you MTA do, yes. Online 1. Exactly. I'm glad. <laughs> so, uh, Sterling um, job there. You should be in this seat, Jange. <laughs> so anyway, uh, to cut it short, sometimes it could be bacteria. Sometimes it could be tribes that are living in the mountains and therefore are not seen very often by people who don't live in the mountains. Mountains, so therefore they're also jinn. And uh, sometimes it can refer to other kind of spiritual entities which are not angels, which are some kind of other spiritual entities. So they do exist. What they are though is quite another story. Is it always a negative dimension? Well, you see, we see people all over the Muslim world today claiming, some people, mm -hmm. that they have uh, mastery over the jinn. But then they, of course, if they did so, and those jinn were such you know, magical and powerful creatures as they would like us to believe, then they should be the ones sitting perhaps today in, you know, in the White House in, uh, in Washington, etc. So it's not happening. So therefore, it's a lot of hocus-pocus going on there. Um, but there are certain uh, creatures which are of, uh, perhaps of other dimensions. We really don't know what their nature is, uh, uh, is in reality. Every so often, there are brushes, though. There are encounters of the, could I say third kind or maybe fourth kind, because third ones are, the third kind is for extraterrestrials. Mm -hmm. um, they do occur, and uh, there are many instances where people who really did not believe in these things mm -hmm. were told that in a certain house there was something that's there, and if you, you, know, you really shouldn't go there because, 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 and when they do go there, they do f feel the effects of that thing, and then they start saying that, yes, there was something there. Mm -hmm. But uh, why they're there, what they do, we know very little of all that. Mm -hmm. So what we're mostly interested in when we talk of jinn is its reality in the physical world. Mm -hmm. So whether it means people of some kind, leaders who are behind the scenes whom we don't, who we don't see usually, and so they're called jinn as well, or bacteria. That's what we're, you know, mostly, uh, snake. yes, and snakes even are called that because they hide in the grass, as they say snake in the grass, it's something hidden. Mm -hmm. So we're concerned of that. Now, just a last little word on, on this to, to just uh, reassure people that, uh, you know, there are these beliefs going around that, that this person was possessed by a jinn. 
or that person was possessed by a jinn and they have to be exercised and all this. That is a lot of, uh, of uh, you know, a pack of lies. People are, are, are benefiting from the superstitions of uh, illiterate people out there uh, to make money for themselves, you know. And there were cases where people were, were prosecuted here in the UK for having, you know, where exorcisms went wrong mm -hmm. and people were stamped on and they died in the process. Mm -hmm. So the people who, who did the stamping are now behind bars. So people should be very, very wary of all that. I must add also that we, in the, the Ahmadiyya Jamaat, strangely enough, we don't hear about these uh, jinn possessions, you know, on a regular basis as we do among the Shias or the Sunnis. It seems to always happen among them. And I think they should ask themselves why it's happening. And why isn't this happening to Ahmadis? There must be some reason. They should reflect upon this. Jazakumullah, Dr. Sabah. Pause for thought, or a <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sure a thought for others as well. And I suppose one simple answer is that, of course, it is our belief that the Yamdi Muslim community represents the renaissance uh, of Islam um, and the same pure Islam that was revealed to the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Um, thank you, uh, Nadia, for your question. And we'll move on to the African continent for our next question, which comes from Dr. Oni Olawali Bashir Pasha from Nigeria. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, thank you for your question, uh, Dr. Pasha. Um, uh, Dr. Saab, if I come to you, this is about, um, well, his first part of his question is what does Islam say about practicing polygamy um, and why it's not fo followed in Western countries? And then he subsequent, there's an added that is this something which you find in evidence in the community as well? But I think the more sort of precise question is one of that, you know, and when he says about polygamy, uh, I'm, 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 I'm putting perhaps words in his mouth, but he's talking about polygamous marriages here as well, and that it's something that's permissible in Islam, but not followed by Muslims in Western countries. Um, perhaps, I mean, it's, it's quite a wide subject, oh, okay. but okay. if you could start perhaps yeah, yeah. just explaining the concept yeah. um, as it is within Islam of polygamous marriages before we come to a specific question. Right. I think we should also at this stage say that polygamy is not a requirement of faith. Yes. But we'll come back to that. Well, I think that's very <laughs> appropriate to say. <laughs> it, from is, it is, answer, isn't it? Yes. But yes, Islam does permit a man to marry more than one wife up to a maximum of four wives. Mm -hmm. But there have to be one uh, valid reasons for him having to do that. And secondly, then the conditions that are placed upon him about how, sh how he should behave to those four wives is something that becomes very difficult for anybody to fully justify and therefore be able to uh, justify that he is permit permitted by his religion to marry more than one wife. You see, there, there can be many reasons or many conditions where it becomes, uh, uh, it becomes a part of his life that he has to marry more than one wife. And there may be some kind of uh, societal thing that because of uh, an imbalance of uh, these two sexes that there are women who were in were in need of support moral support assistance and therefore to take them under your cover and be able to be treated as as, uh, as a wife then man is able to justify that he is able to marry more than one wife so that he is doing justice to the society that he is living in uh, there, there may be that there may be other medical reasons for which reason that he has given been given this permission by Islam, but at the same time, having given this permission, Islam is very particular 
that one must always have equal and fair treatment to the wives that he has un un under, under uh, marriage contract to him. And this can become a very difficult aspect of one's life, is that how to be equal and just, and equal and just and loving to more than one wife is something that many, many people would find not possible to do. And if you are not able to do that, then Islam says, then, then you must only marry one. Mm -hmm. So this is very particular and written in the Holy Quran that you must actually give equal treatment to them. If you are not able to do so, then you must only marry one. So this is where the justification for more than one wife comes in. But at the same time, the limit is prescribed by Islam and Allah endorses the fact that you must only marry one when you cannot justify equal treatment to all your wives. So having taken that into account, we find that many Muslims are not able to justify the position of having to marry more than one wife, let alone having married more than one wife, being able to give equal and just treatment to them, so living within the limits and parameters that have been, that have been prescribed by Islam in this respect. And also, we, as Muslims, the other thing that uh, is important for us is that we have to abide by the law of the country, law of the land, wherever we live in. Mm -hmm. And living here in the UK, the law does not permit us to marry more than one, one woman. And so for, for a Muslim, it is not possible to remain a Muslim and to marry more than one wife living in, in, in the UK because you are going against the law of the land and Islam does not permit you to do that in this respect as, as far as that is concerned. So in, in, in summary, I mean, it's very much a, an exception rather than a norm. And the bar is set very high as well in terms of the criteria which is needed. Indeed, many would argue that if for husband and wife there are obligations on each other in marriage, that those, if those can be fulfilled, there's a very fruitful marriage there in front of you. And to suggest that if someone took an additional uh, wife, you know, the, the bar is so high that it would be very difficult, as you said, for the normal person to actually fulfill such. So it's done, as you said, under exceptions rather exceptions, than the norm. Yeah. And this final point about the rule of law in each country, I think it's an important one because unfortunately you do see at times the flouting of this, um, not just in the UK, across many countries, where it's very clear that the, the constitution, the law of the land does not permit multiple marriages or whatever shape or form, but it doesn't. And that Islam, just so our viewers are clear, Islam actually says that a country that protects you, provides you the, uh, the basis for you to practice your faith and, uh, and indeed propagate your faith, that, that the laws of those lands should be respected as Absolutely. part of your faith. Loyalty to one's nation is part of our faith and, and going from that we have to live and abide by law-abiding uh, citizens of the country that we live in. So all the laws of the land that uh, are out there, we have to fulfill those. Uh, and make sure that we do not uh, conflagrate those laws and we have to live as law-abiding Muslims. Not only in this instance of uh, multiple marriages, but in all aspects of our, our life in whichever country we live in, you will always find that Ahmadi Muslims will abide by the law of the land and therefore they are counted as law-abiding citizens and Muslims in the, in, the, in the same breath. So that is an important aspect of our life and that is how peace and harmony uh, actually exists in society by abiding to the laws of the land as such. Um, we're going to, and my thanks also to uh, Dr. Pasha for his question. We're going to try and squeeze in one more question into the program, which comes from Vakar Saab in the USA. Um, 
Thank you again for your uh, kind comments, Vakar Saab. Jahangir Saab, he's asking about the meaning of the term punishment in the grave. Um, I'll have to ask you for the abridged Jahangir Khan uh, <laughs> answer to this uh, because we're about five or six minutes okay. left in the program. Well, it's something which is uh, understood in very physical terms by many Muslims out there, unfortunately, because it has to do with the soul. So by definition, it's not physical. Um, and we have to remember that all the descriptions that were given by the Holy Prophet Muhammad for example, of, of paradise, of hell, etc., are of a totally different nature, which, of things which we cannot comprehend. He had to explain them, however, in words which we could comprehend. And so a lot of these things have to be taken, you know, in a metaphorical sense. He spoke of certain torments which people would have to face within their graves. Now, we have to realize that the soul is not confined in any physical place after death. But what we do know from what he has told us is that the soul will start to become aware of whether it had done good or had done evil once it has been separated from the physical body. And uh, the soul, of course, has some kind of link with the grave, mm -hmm. but we can't say that it's been confined into that little you know, hole in the ground sure. where the body has been put, mm -hmm. because we really don't know very much about all these, all these things. But most likely that's not what's happening. It's something on, on another plane, on different dimensions, it's totally different. Uh, so what it will be, will be a, a kind of a beginning of torment when one knows, for example, that one is being led to the gallows, being led there in itself is a punishment and it's, some, it's, a, it's a source of suffering and anxiety and anguish. So we can, we can uh, imagine that that's what it uh, refers to. It'll be that anguish when the soul will realize that all that it had been told about the other world and the, the next life is actually true. Mm -hmm. And now they're going to realize that I should, have, you know, I should have done what I was asked to do and now it's too late. And so that will be a source of, of sorrow and, and uh, punishment. Otherwise, to take it literally would be you know, something very childish. And some Muslims go really beyond all limits when they try to understand these things, unfortunately. So they say that it's happening literally? Literally and physically, yes. And this is why we find cases where in certain Muslim countries, when there's a, uh, when there's a janazah, the imam will stand over the, you know, next to the dead body and say, if the angels ask you this, then answer that. If they ask you that, then answer this. You know, give this answer, give that answer. And so it, it becomes like a kind of a, a childish game, whereas uh, it just shows that they're taking it really too literally. And with that, we come to the end of today's program. I would like to thank our panelists and say Jazakumullah to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.